Starting at verse 38, it says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And when they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips, went in with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there, <clears throat> so there they laid Jesus because of the Jews preparation day for the tomb was nearby. What we've been looking at, we've been looking at quite a few details in chapter 19, but we've been looking at the details of the cross. Now, Jesus, Jesus is dead, but he is still left hanging upon the cross. The Romans would usually leave the body upon the cross, again, as a warning. Remember, they had the sign that was over the head of the Lord, and that was usually the charges against that. So, as a body upon a cross would more than likely get your attention, you would read the charges and you would realize, if I break those laws that's going to happen to me. That's going to be the repercussions. And so that was Rome's mindset. The body was usually left there for a while, even to the state of decomposing. And later on, they would just take it down and throw it in a ditch or dispose of it somehow. It was up to the Jews to take the body and to dispose of it according to their customs. Then we come to verse 38 in chapter 9 after this. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to be looking at the after this part. The Apostle John still has one more necessary event to describe to us concerning the time between Jesus's death and his resurrection. The Bible tells us very little about this time, but it does clue us in to some events that we'll be looking at tonight. So I want to look at I want to divide this up basically into three groups. The first I want to look at is Jesus Christ. Where was Jesus during that time? The time in between his death and his resurrection. The Bible gives us some insight in that. Where are all the apostles? What's up with them? They're the ones who, well, had that teaching and training from the Lord Jesus Christ. They should be well versed in who he is. You think they would be busy? You think they would even be there? And then I want to look at, lastly, these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, and the role that they're playing in the example that they give. So, first, Jesus Christ. John went to great lengths, and we saw that last time we met in verses 31 through 37. The fact of the matter is Jesus is dead. There's no doubt about that. It's essential that Jesus die. It's essential that Jesus die in fulfillment of the scriptures, but also what is his death? And I've been kind of hammering that point, so I'll do it again. I mean, Jesus' death tells us that sin came upon him because the wages of sin is death. Death entered in because of sin. And so since Jesus took the sins of the world upon him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then that was going to bring death into his life. And so that being the case, when we see death, what we need to see in the death of Christ is the reality that he bore our sins. And it's because of that that we would rejoice. And so this was a death that was according to the scriptures, as we saw last time, and it was administered under the direction of the Father. At no time was this death of the Lord beyond God's control. 
There's been debates. Was it the Romans? Was it the Jews? Was it us? This is punishment that was placed upon the Son by the Father because the Son bore the sins of the world. He took our punishment because we could not. But still, he is dead, which brings us to the question, where is he at this time? Because according to the Bible, and think about this, once you are conceived, never again will you cease to exist. It's all about location, location, location. But once you are conceived in your mother's womb, never again will you cease to exist. Those who have gone on before us, they're still in existence. They're just not with us. Myself, one day, you're going to read in the paper. Maybe it'll be in the church bulletin when you show up one day. Pastor Mike died the other day. Don't worry. He's just not with us. He still exists. Matter of fact, he's absent from the body, but he is present with the Lord and will be there for eternity. Those people who die apart from Jesus Christ, never will they cease to exist. The problem with them is they'll be existing in outer darkness apart from the presence of God. In Psalm 139, verse 16, it says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book, They were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God's got plans for our life. There's no doubt about it. God's in the details of our lives. My life is thoroughly immersed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when I'm not walking with the Lord, the Lord is still there. He still pursues me. Matter of fact, he's still with me. But Jesus is dead at this time. And so it bears the question, where is he during this time, during these three days? Now, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus refers to Jonah as a prophet. Here's another Old Testament prophecy that Jesus must fulfill. The prophecy that Jesus alludes to is that which pertains to our study. And again, we see it in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, when Jesus said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so, Jesus, three days in the heart of the earth. I can't describe in detail the heart of the earth. Is he literally in the heart of the earth, or is he figuratively that society believing that when you died, you went to the heart of the earth? Now, we know that there's Hades. We see it in the Gospel of Luke. Hades is the holding place for those people who die. The gates of heaven have yet to be opened before Christ uh, paid the price upon the cross. And so since the price for sin was yet to be paid, when people died either out of faith or in faith in what God was going to do, they went to a place called Hades. Hades is not hell. I believe that hell isn't even occupied. We don't see it occupied until Revelation chapter 20. And so you have Hades. Hades is just simply the dwelling place of the dead. There's a good side of Hades, Abraham's bosom, or otherwise referred to as paradise. There's a bad side of Hades. It's a place of torment. It's a holding tank until those people are judged and sentenced to eternity apart from God. 
But as far as the good side of Hades, that's a place that is populated until Christ paid the price upon the cross, and then he's going to lead them into the presence of the Father. Mankind could not go into the presence of the Father until the price was paid for sin. And so before the cross of Christ, mankind could never enter into heaven, the dwelling place of God, because they were still, well, sin was covered, but it hadn't been done away with. So during the time of the Lord's death, he was in the heart of the earth three days and nights. What was he doing during this time? Well, in order to understand, you've got to put three sections of scripture together. So first, let's turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Verse 1, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, when it says sons of God, there's three groups that are referred to as the sons of God. First is Adam. Why? Because God created him directly. Second, sons of God is, well, son of God is Jesus Christ, obviously. And then the others are those who God directly created. And what I mean by directly created didn't come through the birth process. And so the the third group would be angels. Sons of God almost exclusively refers to angels. And so here, I'd have to believe it's speaking to angels, and it's going to be obvious in the context of the text that it's referring to fallen angels. It says, verse 2, that the sons of God saw the angels of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now, we're not going to get into this in in, in depth. Now, what was going on here? Is it possible to an angel, for an angel to impregnate a woman? Some theologians say yes, some say no. We see that angels take the form of men from time to time. And so that's a possibility. Or were they possessing men? Were these men who were demon-possessed and under the control of angels? There's a lot of good theologians that believe that that's the case as well. Verse 3. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. When it says of men of renown, they were strong, but the idea is they were evil as well. Verse 5, then the, law, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, what we know here is, because we've just read the genealogies in, in Genesis and what God was doing, and we know that God is working towards the birth of Messiah because of the sinful situation of mankind. Now, what the devil seeks to do is to throw a monkey wrench into that process. And how does he choose to do it? He chooses to do it through the generations. That if he can disrupt that flow, then he can disrupt God's plan for mankind's salvation. And so that's what we're having here. We're having some kind of demonic influence into the generations of mankind. 
we know what resulted from that was the flood and the wiping out and then from Noah and then going forth and repopulating the earth. And so what you would have to do is to look at that and you would think, okay, God did that and we had these evil people. God wiped them out. Well, how come the angels didn't just start doing it again? Uh, I mean, God, did he leave them free to, to roam? Or did he put some sort of restriction upon them? Well, now go all the way over to the right in your Bible. It's the, the epistle that is just before Revelation, Jude, the letter of Jude. Verses 6 and 7, there's only one chapter. Jude 6 and 7, it reads, And the angels, now comparing this to what we just read back in, in, in Genesis, it's calling them angels, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, they are bound until that time of the judgment. We know this to be the book of Revelation. If you recall, there was an angel that came from heaven with a key to the bottomless pit, that the, uh, the abyss, and they were allowed to come and to torment the earth one last time. And this is before the second coming of Christ. So apparently these angels are in angel or at least demon prison, if you will. It's spoken of as the abyss, which would tell me it's kind of like a bottomless pit that goes deep down into the earth. Is it a literal pit? It doesn't say like a pit. It says a pit. So I have to assume it's something very similar to what we would consider that to be. But nonetheless, this is how they were kept in check. This is why we don't have Genesis chapter 6 continually going on. Do any of these demons step outside of the parameters that God has given them since then? Very possibly, and maybe that pit is still being populated today. I don't know. It doesn't tell me. But nonetheless, I see that this is how God would place a restriction upon that happening again. Now, turn to the left to 1 Peter 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Now again, keep in mind, we're talking about those three days after the Lord's death, but before his resurrection. It says in verse 18, For Christ also, also suffered once for sins. That means he was crucified. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit by whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now, when it says spirits, there's another term that is used almost exclusively of angels. And it says in prison, and I really believe that it's referring to what was written back in Jude 6 that we had just looked at back in Genesis chapter 6. And so Jesus went and preached to those who, those spirits who were in prison. Why don't I believe that this is people? Look at verse 20. For who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, or Genesis chapter 6, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. Now notice how it makes a, a difference here between spirits, which I believe to be angels, and people who it refers to as souls. 
And so it seems quite obvious to me in the context that we're speaking of those demons back in Genesis chapter 6, but when he makes reference to people, he refers to them as souls. Verse 21, well, I'll just leave it there. And so when he went down there and preached to them, he made a declaration of victory upon the cross. Now, when Jesus died, he died in a very public manner for all to see, and the devil saw it, but just so those demons down in the abyss would know, he went down there and preached to them as well. It's also believed that Jesus went into paradise to preach the good news to the Old Testament saints there and to lead them to the gates of heaven. And Luke chapter 23, verse 43, and Jesus said to him, now this would be the thief who was upon the cross, and surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now the paradise that he was speaking of, I do not believe it to be heaven. Jesus had yet to ascend into heaven. And so the paradise, that would be the good side of Hades. He's telling that thief who quite obviously got saved through faith upon the cross, Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. That tells me that he went down to that, that good side of Hades for the express purpose of preaching the good news. Now, if you were an Old Testament saint, you didn't know the details of the gospel. You didn't know the specifics of the gospel. It took great faith to believe in this Messiah and what God was going to do. But now, because they exhibited faith, they were being rewarded for the faith that they, they, they had. And Jesus is coming down, and he, down there, and he's laying out the plan, and he's telling them that I've overcome. Your faith has not been in vain. And so he was preaching judgment to some, but he was preaching the good news of salvation to others. It's the same thing that we've been called to do today. Why did it take three days? I don't know. But I do know that it was prophesied that it would take three days. So three days were that which was necessary. That's the Lord. And that's what's going on with the Lord during this time. Now, there's another group of people that we can't ignore. The second group of people would be the apostles. Now, what were the apostles doing during this time? Well, the time between his crucifixion and his resurrection, this is going to be real short. Nothing. They weren't doing anything. Well, I I guess they were doing something. They were cowering. They were afraid. They understood that Jesus said that just as they persecute him, they're going to persecute them. And and so they're of the mindset, and we'll see this, especially as we move into chapter 21, that just as surely as they came to crucify the Lord, they're just waiting for that knock on, on their door where they come and they take them away. Now, Christ had given them great promises. There's a great future here. Go forth and to make disciples. But at this point, they're yet to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they're concerned about themselves. They're in despair at this time. There's nothing to be said for the Christian who does nothing other than repent. But this is all part of the learning process at this time. And so as far as what's going on with the apostles, there's nothing going on with the apostles. Now, another interesting thing happens during this time that involves two seemingly unlikely men. Once we get into their lives, it's not unlikely at all. But we have Joseph of Arimathea, and we have this man, Nicodemus, 
both men that we have been introduced to previously. Now, you look at them, if the apostles were 12 men who had everything to do with Jesus while he was alive and now are nowhere to be seen, Joseph and Nicodemus were two men that had nothing to do with Jesus while he was alive, but now something's changed. These guys are willing to step forward. And even more than that, they're willing to lay everything on the line here. They're, they're all in. They're given all. Just as the apostles are cowering and trying to hold on to the little bit that they have, Joseph and Nicodemus, they're willing to give all of their lives, all of their livelihood and everything for this man Jesus, and especially this man Jesus, after he's died on the cross. Because isn't that the problem? I mean, if you don't really have full, complete understanding at this point, your guy died. He was your protection. He was your provision. He's the one who you cast your lot with, and now he's dead. And so the apostles, they're running and hiding, but you wouldn't think that Joseph and Nicodemus would be coming forward. So there's something there to that. Now, as for Nicodemus... He's mentioned only three other times, and all of those times are in the Gospel of John. Each time, he is described the very same way. In John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. John chapter 7, verse 50, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night. And so he's really making a point of this. Well, if you look at verse 39 and here in John chapter 19, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night. And so here he is, plain as day right now at his crucifixion. But before, more along the lines of his introduction to Jesus and who Jesus is, he's an undercover, apparently an undercover believer. Nicodemus would not stand with Jesus while he was alive, didn't even want to be seen with Jesus while he was alive. One time he boldly stood for the Lord only to cower down before Jesus' accusers back in John chapter 7. I'll read it, verses 50 through 53. It says, Now Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own home. I would imagine he was a little timid, and they're kind of coming down on him. And so he, he seemingly backed off, but really, I wonder if he did. And we'll look at some things concerning that. Why did Joseph not follow the Lord? Well, the apostles were not necessarily leaving a whole lot when they went to follow Jesus. They didn't have great riches. Matthew more than likely did. He was a tax collector, so he was probably well off. But Jesus went down into the, 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 nor, the, the average people, if you will, and pulled his followers from there. Now, Nicodemus, this guy's got some status. As I said before, he's got something to lose. These guys, they didn't have really anything to lose, but now they think, I'm talking about the apostles, they think that their lives are going to be taken from them, but now Nicodemus is willing to step up. Now keep in mind, both him and, uh, and Joseph, keep in mind what they would lose. They would lose their religious status. They were both Pharisees. They would lose their economic status. 
Nicodemus had a Greek education, so he probably came from a very well-to-do family. Joseph of Arimathea providing the plot and the burial spices, that would cost quite a bit of money. And then their status in society, Nicodemus was referred to as a ruler of the Jews. He was probably a ruler over a synagogue or possibly something like a mayor or a city council person. He would be an outcast if he was seen for who he really is as far as having faith in Jesus. Now, Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23 through 26, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, And surely I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, take this back to Nicodemus. Jesus told him, You must be born again. And when we studied that section of Scripture, how is a person born again? through the word of God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's got to be a work of the Lord. I'll present to you that that mighty work of the Lord was done in both Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea to such a degree that once they saw the crucified Lord, or at least that the Lord had been crucified, you know, obviously they saw the body on the cross, then they were all in. They saw the magnitude of what Jesus was willing to do for all of humanity upon the cross. And they were of the mindset, if he's willing to do that for all of humanity, I'm willing to step forward for him. It's the same attitude that we need to have. Because we can be just like the apostles, cowering back, not in an upper room, but maybe in a church or even in a pew. But we need to be of the mindset that we've got to step forward. Joseph of Arimathea, he had some pretty impressive credentials. He's described as a rich man, a prominent member of the Jewish council, a good and righteous man, a man waiting for the kingdom of God. And here he's described as the ultimate, a disciple of Jesus Christ. But verse 38 tells us that he was also an undercover believer. He feared the Jews. After this, verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. There's a lot of those. There's a lot of those even in the church today. Disciples of Jesus Christ, but secretly. Why? Because not necessarily fear of the Jews, but fear of man. Sometimes the fear of man can overcome the fear that we are to have of God. Being afraid of man can overcome the fear or the respect that we are to have for God. But again, something clicked in this man that overcame that. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission If you recall, during the time of the Passover, they wouldn't want a dead body hanging on the cross, especially one that overlooked the city. You weren't allowed to leave him there through the Passover, but also there had to be, you know, if you murdered somebody and they planted that person across the street from you, so every time you walked out the door, there's the dead body of that person you murdered, I think that would kind of wreak havoc on your conscience. Um, When we were in Israel, now the walls have been rebuilt But we saw what is believed to be Golgotha. And so I can imagine if there was a cross on top of that hill, you would be able to see it from most parts of the city. And so 
it was necessary for the bodies to be removed, and so this is the man who stepped forward, these men, to step forward and to do it. It says in verse 39, And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Now, something that doesn't make a lot of sense here, you know, depending upon how you really look at this. Now, I did a funeral quite a few years ago, at a uh, cemetery in, I guess it's in Fullerton. It's the same cemetery that my father was buried in. At the time that I did the funeral, my dad had been gone for about four years or whatever it might was, I don't really recall. Now, I know my dad's not there. His remains are there, but my dad's not there. I don't go there, I don't go visit it. But once I was there, I figured, well, I'm going to go see. They were supposed to give a, put a headstone on. I wanted to make sure that that was done and whatnot. And so I looked for quite a while until I, I finally found it. And one of the things that kind of grips me, all cemeteries, they're, they're kind of serene. They're, 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 there's a calmness. There's a quietness that is there. Now, if this man, Joseph of Arimathea, if this was truly his tomb or his family tomb, as some say, why would a rich man have a burial place in an unclean area such as this? People weeping and screaming, people being crucified in that area. Jesus wasn't the only person crucified. He's the only person crucified for your sins. But crucifixion was a common method of execution, and that was the place that they did it. And so if you're a rich man... You know, a rich person today, you know, everybody wants to be buried under the shade of a tree on a nice hill. Like, what for? What difference does it make? You know, I I don't really care. You know, you can grind me up and use me for fertilizer on the golf course. Give me some good purpose, you know, at least for the carcass that I leave behind. Um, But nonetheless, if it was a family place for a rich guy, you think he would have found a lot better place than this. Now, the scripture also tells us that this tomb was never used. And so that being the case, I I can't imagine that it's really a family tomb. A lot of people have said that. It seems that there is an element of planning and preparation for the burial of the Lord. There's a brand new place to put him that was either freshly hewn, carved out of stone, or had been freshly purchased for this reason. And also, they had 100 pounds of spices available. They had to know that, well, we're not going to be able to properly take care of the body. We'll see some women were coming to do that on what was to be the first Easter Sunday. But as for that moment, they were going to pack the body in these spices, which just for a couple of days, this was going to be quite expensive. But again, what you need to see, there's some preparation that is going on here. It seems that this element of planning has been put in place especially or precisely for the burial of the Lord. What I believe is that Joseph and Nicodemus had this tune hewed or, or purchased and had the spices prepared specifically for the day that the Lord was going to die. Now, how could they plan this when Jesus' death seemingly was so sudden? Also, What would drive these two men who are Pharisees, think about this, if they're handling the dead body, they're defiling themselves for the Passover. They can't participate in this most holy of Jewish days. Now keep in mind the mindset of the Pharisee. They're very pious, self-righteous people. They would go to great extremes to not do this. And they would definitely 
not do it with Jesus if they really believed that he was, well, if he was really um, not who he said he was. Now, the scripture speaks in two ways that each of these two men could have known of Jesus' impending death and the significance of it. The first way we see in Joseph of Arimathea, the scripture tells us that he very possibly knew exactly what was going on. How would he know exactly what was going on? The same way that you know exactly what was going on, through prayer and through the word of God. Now concerning prayer, Mark chapter 15 verse 43 speaks of Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage and went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, waiting for the kingdom of God. And the idea is, is that he is prepared because he understands through the word of God, through the Old Testament prophecies that Messiah is to come. He's expecting the kingdom of God to be established. I don't know to what degree that he was expecting it. A lot of the Jews expected the kingdom to be restored back to uh, King David's day. But nonetheless, he's expecting something to happen. Now, how does a disciple wait on the Lord? I believe he waits on the Lord the same means by which we wait on the Lord as reflected through the psalmist in Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet on the rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear, and he will trust in the Lord." The way we wait patiently for the Lord is in God's word, in fellowship, but specifically in prayer. Now the word of God, Joseph got the word straight from the Lord's mouth. The scriptures do not tell us how or when, but just that it happened. In Matthew 27, verse 57, also in John chapter 19, verse 38, what we've just read here, but in John 27, 57, it says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. What is a disciple? A disciple is a learner. And so that tells me that Jesus was teaching him. And so what does he have? He's got the word of God directly from the word of God. And this being the case, what would Jesus have taught him? Well, it's the same thing the apostle Paul knew was to be prominent in all preaching. I come to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I come to you bringing nothing else than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus taught him of the crucifixion. We see where he taught his disciples of the crucifixion. And a lot of times when it was speaking of Jesus, see, keep in mind, there's apostles and disciples. Apostles are disciples, but disciples aren't necessarily apostles. And so when you hear of Jesus and his disciples, it's possible that he, as well as many others, could have been there listening to the teachings as well. The second way that each of these two men could have known of Jesus' impending death and his significance is seen in Nicodemus. He also heard the words of the Lord, and we see this in John chapter 3, verses 10 through 21. Well, what's right in the middle of 10, 21 is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. 
And so these are men who are dwelling upon these teachings and these words that are coming from Jesus. Then when he was confronted, we'll revisit what I just read a little bit earlier, by the rest of the Sanhedrin, they unwillingly, unknowingly encouraged him. In John chapter 7, verse 52 through 53, they answered and said to him, now this is the Sanhedrin speaking to Nicodemus, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee, and everyone went to his own house. I would imagine Nicodemus checked it out, and there is prophets that are from Galilee. And so that not being a strange thing, it wouldn't be a strange thing for Jesus Christ to come from Galilee. And you'd start looking and you'd start investigating. Now, I would think it not a strange thing because we've got neat fellowship here at this church. We're about to go eat ice cream together. In the Word of God as well. I mean, our small groups and just our times together to be able to serve and the float and, you know, and just so many other things. We have VBS that is coming up. I would imagine it wouldn't be a strange thing because we see that they got together here for Joseph and Nicodemus to get together and to search the scriptures to see if these things are, are, are true, to see if Jesus Christ... I mean, can you imagine these guys hearing these teachings of Jesus understanding that this guy's fulfilling scriptures at a time when the scriptures tell us that Messiah was coming, and then opening up such as something like Isaiah 53 that speaks of the details of what Christ's mission was. And all of a sudden, it's got to be... I mean, how did you feel on the day that you were saved? Uh, in, in my religious upbringing, you know, I knew something was off, but that's all I had. And then I sat under Bible studies that were taught verse by verse, and this huge light bulb came on. And I'd have to believe that this huge light bulb came on in both of these men's lives. And they realized that Jesus is the Messiah that has been set from God. Why would these men make plans for Jesus' burial? Because they believed. Why would these men expose themselves as disciples to their detriment even? Because they believed. Why would they defile themselves from celebrating the Passover? Because they no longer needed a Passover lamb, because they're realizing this is the lamb of God who now takes away the sins of the world. All those previous Passovers were all pointing towards this day of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And then even more than that, he's dead upon the cross. Put yourself in their position. As he's there, you see the body upon the cross. Now, just think, I mean, just for sake of of, kind of just silly illustration, what if that body is left upon the cross for seven days? Then there's going to be three days added on to that until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So these guys are expediting things by getting that body off the cross. Let's get him in the grave. Let's be ready for that resurrection. And so these men, I believe, are really passionate about what they're doing. And they're even more so, I mean, have you ever had a, a, a portion in somebody's salvation to be used by God in somebody's salvation? Or just to be used by God in anything? It's just a blessing. And these guys got to know they're being used. They're part of God's plan here. And just the blessing that that's truly got to be is they're seeing these Old Testament scriptures that they've been studying all their lives. Remember, they're Pharisees. They know the scriptures in detail, but now here's the fulfillment of it all. And we're part of it. We don't know what happened to these men. It doesn't matter. They do represent who we are to be, though. We are to be people who are disciples. 
We are to learn of these things, become sure of these things, and these things are to alter our lives, willing to lay it all out on the line. I don't know if Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea were killed for their belief in Christ. Tradition says certain things, but you never know how true that really is. The apostles, those who are cowering and hiding, they're going to give their lives because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the thing about it is, once they believed, they were all in. This Lamb of God has taken away their sins. Acts 4.12, nor is there salvation in any other name, for there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And so we see Jesus. Jesus is still fulfilling scriptures during this time. His apostles, well, they're going to have their moments, but they're a little bit down the road. It's not their time yet. But these two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, they're realizing the truthfulness of God's word. They're understanding the magnitude of God's love as they're seeing Christ upon the cross. And from that point on, it's going to be all for Jesus. Father, once again, I pray that we would have that mindset because we've got the same word. We've got the Holy Spirit that has been sent and the truthfulness and the validation of your gospel and and all that you accomplished. And I pray, Father, that we as a people would embrace these things. We thank you, God, for your grace that has set us free from the bondage that sin has brought us in. And as we have been set free, it's for your purposes and your reasons. And so, Father, I pray that we would be willing to give all for you who gave all for us. And so, Father, we just thank you that you have given us this section of Scripture tonight. I pray for those who have come out, that you would go before them, that you would watch over us as we travel. I pray, Father, that tomorrow, all through through the weekend, Father, that we would be open to your leading and the direction that you have set before us, and that, Father, we would just see you continue to do wonderful things. And so, Lord, we just thank you, and we just praise you for your goodness and your graciousness, and we just ask, God, that you would that you would just make your presence known in our lives, and that, Father, would truly be a motivating factor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? We do have Vacation Bible School coming up. There's flyers that are at the information booth, I believe. Uh, keep it up in prayer. It's going to be starting a week from this Monday, but keep it up in prayer. We already have somebody just from the parade that's coming, and I'm sure that represents many more people. Just pray and see what the Lord's going to do. God bless you guys. Have a great rest of the week.